so I um, am not going to be continuing in Isaiah. Uh, we'll leave that for when Dr. Master comes back. Um, but I do want to look at something that uh, is somewhat related. We're going to look at the book of uh, Micah. So it'll take two weeks to consider um, the, the prophet Micah and his word. Um, and hopefully you'll see here some of the connections. Uh, oftentimes I think we forget that some of these prophets actually prophesied at the same time. So we maybe sometimes have this vision of you know, Isaiah all by himself. And he surely was at times probably all by himself or at least felt that way. Uh, the Lord um, had told him his ministry was going to result in people not hearing, not responding, right? Um, but there were others prophesying at the same time. So uh, Micah is one of them. Uh, Amos and Hosea also uh, prophesied about the same time that Isaiah did. So we're going to look at uh, Micah. Uh, you can turn to Micah chapter 1. And I wanted to, uh, I think, start looking at just some of the, the differences and similarities between Micah and Isaiah. So actually, if you, if you keep your finger in Micah and then flip back to Isaiah chapter 1, um, what are some of the, let's start with some differences, even in just in uh, the first verse of the first chapter of each of those that you can see. So comparing Isaiah 1.1 to Micah 1.1. Take a moment and look at those and Tell us whatever kind of stands out to you as some differences there. Somebody who has Isaiah 1-1, read that for us. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay. And somebody read Micah 1-1 for us. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay, so differences. Anything that you notice? Uh, Micah is a prophet to both Judah and the rest of the kingdom of Israel. Yes, yep. So... As opposed to uh, Isaiah, what is he? Where is he primarily called to uh, prophesy? Specifically to Judah. Yeah. So Micah is prophesying both to the north and the south. Um, Isaiah is primarily prophesying to the south. Okay. What else? Isaiah, in my translation, says it's a vision, and Micah said it's the word. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that, that's the okay. difference. Or... That's a good point. Um, so possibly there's a difference there, but it's also interesting. Uh, we get this unique language where Micah has the word of the Lord, but then notice at the end it says, which he saw. saw. Mm-hmm. So maybe some differences, but maybe also they both had visions. Um it's, a, it's an interesting way of speaking of, of the message that Micah is going to deliver. It's the word of the Lord, but he saw it. Uh, so there may be some similarities and differences there. Yeah. We'll put vision under Isaiah, and then uh, the word that Micah saw. <laughs> what else? What are we told about... Um, Isaiah. 
He's the son of Amos. Son of Amos. So we get his family. We don't get that about Micah, right? We don't know anything actually about Micah's family. We do get, though, in contrast, where he's from, which is Morasheth. So um, I'm going to uh, follow Dr. Master's example and not do very good art. <laughs> uh, if we have Jerusalem here, Morasheth is about 22 miles to the southwest. So a little bit south and a little bit closer to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and it would have been kind of a country area, rural in contrast to Jerusalem, the big city, right, where uh, Isaiah is from. Um, so we, we know that he's from this area. We don't know who his father is. Uh, whereas Isaiah and uh, most of the other prophets uh, we're told who their family is. Um, okay, anything else? And this isn't quite clear from these uh, first verses themselves, but we know from Isaiah 6 what about Isaiah, which is also told in other prophets. We get a picture of or a telling of his call, right? Um, and we don't get anywhere in Micah's uh, book a telling of his call, how it is that he came to be a prophet. Um, so that's another another small difference. Um, okay, one other small difference in there. Uzziah is mentioned. In yes. So uh, Isaiah uh, begins his ministry uh, during the reign of Uzziah. Micah starts a little bit after that. Um, he, he begins his ministry when Jotham is on the throne. And if you remember what Dr. Master said about uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, we essentially get good king, really bad king, and then good king, right? Um, Isaiah, I think Dr. Master said, probably prophesied for 45, 50 years, maybe more than that. So he had a very long ministry. Uh, Micah, based on these, the reigns of these kings, uh, probably had a ministry of at least 20 to 25 years, maybe a little bit longer than that, uh, but not quite as long as Isaiah's. Uh, so obviously, in both of those cases, we're only getting a little bit of what they would have you know, prophesied during that long ministry. We're getting what they have recorded for us. Um, okay, so, so these are just some minor differences. The main thing, though, I want to highlight... Uh, both this week and next week, is the similarities between Isaiah and Micah and between their ministries, uh, which makes sense, right, that they're prophesying at the same time. There's going to be similar uh, issues that they are addressing and dealing with, um, similar messages. Um, but first, um, one thing to point out, though we don't have Micah's call, though we have some of these differences in terms of, you know, how they describe their ministry of vision versus a word that he saw, uh, it is clear that Micah, like Isaiah, is a prophet, right? Um, and, and part of that is because of the way he starts the book. This is the word of the Lord that came to Micah. So it's clear he's not giving his own message uh, to the people of Israel and Judah. He is giving a message that was given to him. And then he makes it even more clear if you flip over to Micah chapter 3. Uh in verse 8, he says, But as for me, 
I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So it's clear he is a prophet called by God to deliver a message. Um, secondly, um, we already talked a little bit about this, um, but uh, they both apparently had visions of some kind. Um, Isaiah makes that clear in saying that it is a vision, and again, Micah says it's the word which he saw. Uh, another little interesting connection, um, the, both of these prophets, their name is connected to the message that they're going to bring. So the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. Uh, the name Micah means who is like Yahweh. So it's this rhetorical question, who is like the God of Israel? And um, if you flip to Micah chapter 7, you'll see that the book closes uh, in verses 18, 19, and 20 with this uh, question, right? Who is a God like you? Uh, and we'll talk a little bit later about what that's referring to. So, um, also, uh, we, we mentioned already, but there is some overlap, significant overlap, in terms of the time that they're ministering. So, during the reign of Jotham, which is roughly 750 to 735, and then Ahaz, which is roughly 735 to 715, and then Hezekiah, 715 to 687. And interestingly, uh, we know that both the message of Isaiah and the message of Micah that they gave uh, at some point to the king Hezekiah was heeded and was instrumental uh, in Hezekiah listening to the Lord. So if you look at um, it is 2 Kings 19, I think, is... Uh, what records uh, Isaiah um, reassuring Hezekiah. Um, so we know from 2 Kings 19 that uh, Isaiah's ministry had a significant effect on Hezekiah. Uh, that's the, you know, the, the recording of Hezekiah spreading the letter before the Lord and saying, you know, we do not know what to do. Um, in Jeremiah... So Jeremiah chapter uh, 26, I believe it is. Let's see. Yeah, so Jeremiah chapter 26, uh, this is when um, Jeremiah is threatened with death. And there's uh, a meeting of the officials. So starting in verse 16, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So you can see the officials are hearkening back to Hezekiah listening to, uh, to Micah's ministry and responding in faith to that. Um, 
Okay. I want to move into then the probably most significant overlaps uh, or similarities that we see um, between the book of Isaiah and the book of Micah. Any questions before we jump into that? I know we're going at a little bit of a quick pace. I'm going to try and cover all seven of these chapters to some extent in, in this week and next. Um, it would be great if we had more weeks, but uh, I think hopefully this will still be profitable. Okay, so the main similarities or overlaps we're going to see are, are in the theme, um, the main themes of the book of Micah, which uh, are what we're going to see also in Isaiah and what uh, Dr. Master has already mentioned. Um, and those could really be um, kind of put under two headings, essentially, uh, the heading of judgment and restoration. Two themes which honestly run through all of Scripture, right? Um, but they're especially brought out um, in the, the Old Testament prophets. Um, so Micah's book is actually structured, we'll get to an outline maybe a little bit later uh, or, or next week, but it's essentially structured uh, into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 kind of go together, uh, 3, 4, and 5 go together, and 6 and 7. And each of those sections has parts of judgment, uh, that Micah is pronouncing, uh, followed by uh, a message of restoration or hope or forgiveness. And in the first section, chapters 1 and 2, it starts out with a very small, just two little verses that give hope of restoration. Uh, in 3, 4, and 5, there's a bigger section. Uh, and then obviously, chapter 7, um, we're going to see, will close with a significant promise of hope for restoration and forgiveness. So, first of all, though, we're going to look at judgment. Right? Because in order to understand forgiveness, we have to start with judgment. And just a side note, I think uh, Dr. Master also mentioned that we see these two themes often in the songs of Scripture as well, right? They go together. So, uh, first, judgment. So Micah's going to pronounce judgment on the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. Uh, and there are a few specific reasons that he's going to do so. So wh why are Israel and Judah going to be judged? What kind of sins... Um, are they being judged for? And again, some of these Dr. Master has already mentioned with regards to Isaiah. Um, but one of them he's going to point out is that the, the people are outward, outwardly religious, but their hearts are far from God. So uh, if we look, for example, at chapter 3, verse 11. Um, So, let me back up and start reading in uh, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So there's a sense in which they're still outwardly practicing religious things, and yet uh, the, their heart is not, uh, is not for the Lord. It's not following the Lord. Um, earlier in that same chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, 
who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So essentially the prophets were, were the false prophets were teaching for money, for gain, right? Um, verse 2 of this chapter makes it clear it, it's a heart issue, right? Um, and I said, uh, chapter 3, starting verse 1, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? So it's a, there's a heart problem there, ultimately. Um, we see this also in chapter 6, uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, this, this is uh, Micah kind of quoting what the people would be saying. Uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I think referring to the uh, setting aside of the firstborn as, as you know, devoted to the Lord for service. Uh, so there's this sense again in which they're kind of performing the outwardly you know, ritualistic things that the Lord had uh, told them as a part of worshiping him, and yet their heart is really not in it. So that's one problem. Uh, second, we see idolatry, which shouldn't be a surprise, right? So um, in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Micah says, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And then again in... Uh, Chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Uh, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. So, obviously, there is idolatry. Uh, going on in the land, right? And one of the, you know, Dr. Master mentioned this as well from Isaiah, that one of the problems of these kings is oftentimes, even if they themselves were, were very personally devoted to the Lord, they didn't go and destroy the high places, right? So that idolatry is, is left in the land. Um, a third big issue in Micah uh, is this um, notion of injustice and exploitation of others. So uh, there's a, numerous places where this is talked about, but back in chapter 2, uh, verses 2 and 9, I'll start in 2-1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So they're planning these things, right? When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Uh, jump down to... Uh, verse 9, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful home houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. So, kind of what's happened here, just a little bit of the backstory. It, during uh, Uzziah's reign, the, the country became very wealthy, was very prosperous, well off, was kind of a major power, did not have these threats, at least early on in his reign, from the north and the south uh, around them. And what ends up happening is this, this wealthy upper class starts taking the land from the, the poor, uh, buying things up um, and exploiting them, which the Lord had expressly forbidden, right, in his, in his covenant with the people. 
that they would actually care for the people in need, that he made provisions for the land to go down from generation to generation so that families would be taken care of, and it's the opposite happening now, right? Um, look also at uh, chapter 6, verses 10 and 12. Micah says, Can I forget, speaking for the Lord, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is a curse. Shall I equip a man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So there's corrupt business practices going on. Again, they're taking advantage uh, of others. And then uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. So even to the extreme of doing violence to one another. Um, these are some of the sins that Micah is, is denouncing. And then really all of this comes back to a failure of the leadership. So both the civil leadership as well as the, the spiritual leadership, right? We already looked at some of the verses that talk about the prophets prophesying for, for gain. Um, Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Horrible pictures, right? I don't think this is literally what's going on, but it's a picture of how the Lord sees the leaders taking advantage of those who they're supposed to be serving and leading, right? Um, instead, they're, they're gaining from it for themselves. Um, same chapter, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Uh, and then again, going into... Verse 11, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Um, again, this, this is all the leadership, right, taking advantage of the people, uh, and rather than serving, they're looking out for their own selfish interests. Um, so, these are the, the significant sins that are happening, and have been happening for a while, in both the northern and the southern kingdom. Right? There's outwardly religious observances with uh, hearts that are far from, from the Lord. Um, there's idolatry going on. There's injustice, exploitation of others, taking advantage of people, violence. Uh, and all of this really is, is starting at the top down. Right, It's the leaders um, that, are, that are leading the way in these kinds of things. Um, and in some ways, then, uh, we see why at the beginning Micah says that this is the word of the Lord which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting. He's, he uses just the names of the cities rather than actually the kingdoms themselves. Um, now, it's, it, it's not because he thinks it's just the cities that are the problem, but I think there's a, a sense in which he is especially calling out the city as the center of the, the nation, and from it flows everything else, right? Um, we we you know, even think of the same thing in our day we talk about you know, Washington says this, or Moscow did this, and we really mean the nation as a whole, as embodied by that 
that city. Uh, and Micah's doing the same thing here uh, with the capital cities of the northern and, and southern kingdom. Okay, so we've seen why they're going to be judged. What is that judgment going to look like, though, is another question we might ask. Um, and there's, I think, three different ways we can, we can describe what's going to happen to them. Uh, one of the things that Micah does is he kind of, he kind of uh, takes what the leaders have been doing and essentially says, this is what the Lord is going to do to you now. Not in the sense that he's going to take advantage of them or exploit them, but in the sense that when the people have come to the leaders and cried out for help, they have not helped them. So if you look at uh, chapter 3 again, starting in verse 4. Micah says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. And then in verse 6 and 7, this is what he's going to do to the prophets, those prophets that are false prophets, prophesying for gain. He says, Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So the Lord is going to turn away. He will not answer them in their cry for help. Second, he is going to take away the things that they are trusting in. Uh, and this is especially um, the one of the, the main themes in Isaiah that Dr. Master already mentioned is, um, where, where are the people going to trust, right? And from, from these verses, so look at chapter 5, verses 10 to 14, it's clear that they've been trusting in the wrong things, and the Lord's going to take those away because they've been trusting in them. So uh, chapter 5, verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. So all of these external things they were beginning to trust in, the walls, the chariots, the horses, the idols, uh, the Lord will, will take all of them away. Uh, which ultimately is, is a mercy because it leaves them with nothing in the end but himself to trust on. And we'll see that here in a minute as well. Um, third, we, we, we need to note, and Dr. Master again has mentioned this in Isaiah, but God is going to keep his covenant promises of judgment that he had made way back in Deuteronomy 28. So uh, if we look here in Micah 6, 13 to 15, this is the same kind of language that we see in Deuteronomy 28 of what the Lord had said would happen if they abandoned him when they went into the promised land. Uh, so 6, starting in 13, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. So all of these produce, the fruit of the land, will not be theirs. It will not satisfy, and others will come and take it, ultimately. Um, 
also uh, we'll see if you look at verse chapter one verses fourteen, excuse me, fifteen and sixteen. Micah prophesies that they will be exiled, right? So one fourteen. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achshib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, the inhabitants of Mereshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Again, the 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 judgment that is coming is what the Lord had promised would, would come to them hundreds of years before this, right? Um, so we're left with not a very pleasant picture at this point, right? Of the state of, of Israel and Judah uh, at this time, the sins that they've been engaging in and the judgment that the Lord's going to bring. Um, but as is always the case, there is also the theme of forgiveness or restoration, right? Uh, we always have to hold these two together because it's clear that God is a God of justice, right? Uh, he is a holy God and he will judge sin and yet he holds out the, the offer of forgiveness. So we will look at that just briefly and we're going to get more into this uh, next week. Um, but judgment is not the final word. Uh, and I mentioned already uh, that in each of these sections it, it starts with judgment but there's a note of of forgiveness and hope. So if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12, so 12 and 13, we get just this little snippet uh, of, of hope. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He's going to gather his people. Um, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and Interesting to note, we'll get into this again, I think, hopefully next week, but, you know, following 3.12, we get this terrible picture. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Stark picture, right, of the judgment that is coming on the people in the land. Chapter 4, verse 1, we jump right in. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's a complete reversal, right? And it's not only a restoration of God's people, but it's actually bringing others in from the nations. Um, and then <clears throat> also in chapter 4, verses Six and seven. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And then also uh, at the end of chapter 10, he says, um, there you shall be rescued. Or excuse me, end of verse 10 in chapter 4. <laughs> So, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, last part. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Uh, and then uh, flip over to, we already just looked briefly, but chapter 7, starting in verse 18. And this explains why. Why is it that the Lord holds out forgiveness even to those who have 
uh, rebelled against him. Um, Micah says, who is a God like you? Again, using what his, what his name means. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So the Lord will do this because that's who he is, right? It's part of his nature. He is both a God of of judgment on sin and a God of forgiveness. He delights in steadfast love. Um, So it is clear from Micah, as well as from Isaiah, and, and obviously much of Scripture, uh, that God cares deeply about justice, uh, about righteousness. Um, he cares deeply about sin being punished, right? Um, and he cares about justice not only vertically in our sin against him being judged, but he cares about justice horizontally as well, how we treat uh, others. Uh, but it's also clear that God is a forgiving God, right? And we have to always hold those two things uh, together. Um, and ultimately, this is what sets him apart from other gods, right? That's what Micah says at the end. Who is a god like you? In what way are all these false gods not like him? It's that he delights, right? He, he delights in steadfast love. He passes over uh, transgression. He pardons iniquity. And ultimately, you know, throughout the, the, the Old Testament, I think, uh, this is where, you know, we as Christians looking back now recognize uh, from the New Testament how this can be. How can these two things be held together? That God is a God of judgment, justice, right, uh, wrath, punishment of sin, and a God of forgiveness. Ultimately, it's because of the cross, right? That's what Paul says in, in Romans 3. Um, he says that God is both just, that is, he punishes sin, and the justifier of those who have faith in him in Jesus Christ, right? How is it that he could pass over sins for so long? Uh, it's because ultimately he would deal with it in the cross of Christ. Um, so those are the, the, the major themes, uh, I think that are going on in this book. And like I said, we'll, we'll dive in a little bit more to some of this, um, next week. Um, let me close with just giving you kind of a quick outline of the book. Um, Dr. Master has said, you know, that obviously outlines are not infallible, um, they're our best attempt to kind of help structure the way a, a, a book reads and help us make sense and categorize things. Um, and Micah actually is a pretty easy one in some ways to get sort of a major uh, outline of what's going on. And um, I would encourage you this afternoon, uh, if you've been in the service, you'll know this will fit really well with the service. If you haven't been in the service, then you'll recognize. But this afternoon, just take time and read. It's only seven chapters. It doesn't take that long to read it, but read through the book of Micah, uh, and keep these things in mind as you're doing so. Um, I'll give kind of a, uh, a little bit more detailed outline for you. So, um, we have what we would call the superscription, or the intro, in the first verse, obviously. Micah introduces who he is and what his message is. Um, then we get uh, a section on Judgment, and then I'm going to put in parentheses because it's really small, but it's there, right? And restoration, 
for Israel and Judah. That's from uh, chapter 1, verse 2, through the end of uh, chapter 2. The biggest chunk in the middle um, is dealing with present injustice. This whiteboard is actually kind of hard to write on because it's springy. <laughs> present injustice and a future just rule. And if any of you know uh, Micah at all, you'll know chapter 5 is what talks about the shepherd king, right? Pointing to one who will not abuse or take advantage of the people, right? But will, but will rule justly, uh, obviously pointing to Christ. Um, so that's 3.1 to 5.15. And then last... We have uh, the Lord's indictment and restoration of his people. So that's uh, 6 1 to 7 20. Now, if you want a really easy way to think of the outline of this book, just think chapters 1 and 2. We have judgment and restoration. Chapters 3, 4, and 5. Again, we have judgment and restoration. And then chapter 6 and 7. Judgment and restoration. The key is if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2, notice what it starts with. Here, you peoples, all of you. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, and I said, here, you heads of Jacob. And then the same in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. All three of those plural imperatives here. That's how it breaks out really nicely. Um, into those sections. Uh, let me, unless there are any questions, any questions? If not, I will pray and we'll be dismissed. And then again, I would encourage you to just take a little bit of time this afternoon, if you have it, to read through the book. It's not a question, but I was reading this um, table talk mm -hmm. that's out there by the library, and it's on the Jewish life in the days of Jesus. I thought it was most interesting. I found this table talk to be really a good teaching tool. Yeah, we use it at home as well. And I think there are a couple more uh, issues up there on the counter in case any of you would like to take them. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, praise you. We do worship you. Who is a God like you? Uh, there is no other. Uh, we recognize, Lord, even from the little bit we've looked at this morning, uh, that you are a God of, of justice. Uh, you will bring judgment on sin. That is clear from your word. Uh, we must not um, downplay that message. Uh, we must not overlook the seriousness of sin. Uh, and yet, Lord, we rejoice to know that you are a God of, of forgiveness and restoration as well, that you uh, delight in steadfast love, that, that you hold out hope, hope for those who will uh, look to you in faith and in repentance, uh, who will recognize uh, our sin and turn to Christ, um, the great shepherd king. Uh, we do ask, Lord, for your blessing on the worship uh, service now, uh, we pray that you would help us to devote this day to uh, resting in you, um, in worshiping you, uh, and that you would use it to restore and refresh our souls. Uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.